Hi, this is Andrew, and this is Keynote, the daily now.tv chat show with some of the world's leading thinkers and writers. Hello, everybody. It is August the 8th, 2022. I'm speaking to you from San Francisco, uh, a place where many great movies have been made, including, of course, Bullet, Vertigo, and The Conversation, amongst many. We've done a number of shows recently on writers, fiction, and Hollywood, um, and, of course, the movies. Late last week, I did one with Liska Jacobs, author of The Pink Hotel, where she actually went to live in the Beverly Hills Hotel for a week uh, to experience what it was like before writing The Pink Hotel. Also did a show at the end of last week with Dwyer Murphy, New York-based writer who has a noir love letter to New York City, a wonderful book called An Honest Living, which ironically enough is very much based around Chinatown, the greatest perhaps of all movies about the movie industry in Los Angeles. My guest today is another very distinguished American uh, fiction writer, Anthony Mara. And he, of course, has a new book out, a new novel, which is also about Hollywood and the movies, Mercury Pictures Presents. Anthony is joining us from Union Square in San Francisco, that wonderful square where the conversation was filmed. Anthony, uh, welcome. Why a book about Hollywood and the movies? Well, thank you, first of all, so much for having me on, Andrew. Um, it's it's a good question. Why Hollywood in the movies? I think that um, that it, it my my interest in this subject arose from the period itself. Um, Frank Lloyd Wright once said that if you tip the world on its side, all the loose pieces will land in Los Angeles. And this was never more true than it was in the 1930s when thousands of refugees fleeing the war in Europe landed in LA. And many of them ended up working in Hollywood. And the result was this really seismic cultural transfusion. You had uh, Thomas Mann in Pacific Palisades writing Dr. Faustus. You had people like Fritz Lang and Billy Wilder on the backlots of RKO and Paramount combining German expressionist cinematography with hard-boiled American pulp to create film noir. It's this kind of fascinating period in which um, in which you have people from all over uh, all over the world kind of um, colliding on these artificial sets in in Hollywood and making some some movies that really um, not only shaped the war years but shaped how we remember them today. You know, there's probably no subject that's been more mythologized in American history than World War II, and a lot of that myth making went on during the war itself and. It was due to the the work and the labor of many of these emigres um, that we have this remarkable body of work to look back on today. It's uh, ironic. Uh, Hannah Arendt, of course, who was one of those refugees, um, was a theorist of the foundations of totalitarianism being this confusion of fact and reality. Many of the German intellectuals who ended up in Los Angeles uh, had a similar way of thinking they weren't all formally part of the Frankfurt School. Um, it, it is ironic, Anthony, isn't it, that so many critics, 
so many European critics, including Thomas Mann of uh, popular democratic American culture, would have ended up in the palace of, um, or the city which represented that popular culture more than anything else, Los Angeles. It's true, and and many uh, many of these refugees re referred to Los Angeles as sunny Siberia. Um, there's something about uh, about that particular view of of LA that I've always found rather fascinating. Um, because for me, as you know, I, I'm an American who grew up on on the East Coast, and California, and specifically Los Angeles, always seemed to me as as sort of this this promised land. But for many of the refugees who found a sort of uncomfortable sanctuary there during the war years. It was, uh, it was maybe maybe less um, uh, less less comfortable a uh, a landing pad than than they might have hoped. It 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 needs to be uh, borne in mind that you know these many of these emigres were coming from countries and from cities with very very long intellectual and and artistic histories um, and arriving to a city like LA, which really um, it began to become a, uh, a modern city in the way that we think of it in the in the teens and the 20s um, with with a far, um, you know, a, a, a far less um, robust intellectual and artistic um, history. It, it, it felt uh, a bit jarring, I think, to, to many of those emigres. But but what was so remarkable about that that period is that they really kind of made it their own. Um, you know, it was uh, referred to at times as Weimar on the Pacific, and many of the um, many of the ways that we uh, understand both Los Angeles and and America is through the eyes of those emigres. There's this this great line. I, I can't remember if it was. Um, Billy Wilder, who, who said it, but it was something to the effect of these emigre directors came to America and were immediately expected to begin explaining America to itself. And that is, you know, certainly the, the legacy of many of these. Anthony, to what extent was this, if you like, second generation of intellectuals who fled to Los Angeles? What similarities and differences were there between them and the founders of the American movie industry, who tended to also be of certainly of European descent, many of them Jews, who went from the East Coast, particularly New York, to Los Angeles at the beginning of the century. Are there similarities or is it quite different? Well, the emigres the, the who fled in, in the 30s and 40s tended to be uh, tended to be from relatively more prosperous backgrounds, tended to be um, uh, more um, more educated. Um, it it was a, a sort of different slice of society that ended up in um, Los Angeles in, in part because it, it largely depended on receiving work visas. Um, and so if you were somebody who worked in the arts, somebody who had connections, somebody who could, um, you know, lobby for a, a work visa from one of these studios, it became much easier to emigrate. Whereas um, the generation uh, prior to this, um, around the, the turn of the century, it was uh, a much, much broader uh, swath of um, European immigrants who were allowed access to the United States. You talked about slice of society. Uh, Hitchcock, of course, famously refers famously referred to movies as or good movie as a slice of slice of cake. 
Uh, your book has been described as a cinematic novel by the Washington Post, who loved it. Did you purposely write it as a cinematic novel in a, in a Hitchcock sense, as a slice of cake about humanity? Well, I love the idea that if you're if you're writing a, a novel about the movies, being able to draw from the various tropes and archetypes and narrative forms that the movies uh, that the movies provide seems like a, a logical a logical step as an author. And so, yes, I, I self consciously really did try to uh, make this a, a cinematic novel in the in the largest. How, how do you? And, and sorry to jump in here, uh, Anthony. The the Washington Post said that the book should come with popcorn and a 70, 70 ounce. I'm not sure whether you took that as a compliment. Did you <laughs> consciously write the book as a kind of fictional alternative to the movies? Did you, are, are you in the, I mean, you're a very innovative uh, writer. Many people will be familiar with your first two books, A, Const a Constellation of Vital Phenomena and The Czar of Love and, and Techno, both uh, acclaimed uh, pieces of fiction. Were you trying to develop the form of, 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 uh, of fiction, in, in a sense, in this book? Yeah, I mean... Mercury Pictures presents, because it has a very traditional title and in some ways a fairly traditional narrative. It, it does. I, I, I guess that, that I... So one of the things that I love about about movies and, and TV is is the fact that the camera tends to be much more omniscient than um, than narrators in, in fiction tend to be. And so so one of the things that I really try to draw from the the film medium is is this idea of a wide ranging omniscient narrator um, that follows characters much in the way that that the camera does. So so there's certainly aspects of film grammar that I really tried to incorporate into the book itself. It it was a way of, of both sort of paying homage to uh, some of the movies that you know that I most love and trying to um, to take from film. Uh, uh, narrative shapes and 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 ideas that that feel um, particularly germane to the story being told. The Times suggested that your most the most fascinating piece of Mercury Pictures presents is the way, and I'm quoting the Times review. It teases out the complications of realism, and then in a wonderful review in the in the LA Times, of course, who know cinematic novels as when is, as anyone. It suggests the book is almost like Fellini in reverse, which was a wonderful compliment, particularly in terms of realism. Were you, and, and we're going to bring in the Italian angle because there's a strong Italian piece in the narrative, but were you trying to play around with neorealism, neo surrealism, and the other traditions in movies, particularly the Italian tradition? I was, I was particularly interested in the ways that that realism and fantasy intersect and this was never more true i think than it was during this period um, particularly in the creation of uh, propaganda and and in uh, film documentaries um, the very limitations of camera technology at the time meant that it was very difficult to shoot a battle scene in 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 the field um, in, in in terms of creating a documentary. And so, um, there's this this famous uh, movie called San Pietro, um, which was directed by John Huston when he was working for the U.S. Army. 
and he arrived to the small village in southern Italy called San Pietro, and uh, he got there on uh, basically the last day that uh, that the battle was being fought. And he spent the next several months reenacting the battle in this town in order to shoot it on film because it was kind of the only way he was able to uh, to document it. And even though it's long been known that, that this documentary is largely composed of staged reenactments, it continues to this day to be considered one of the most uh, powerful and, and artistically um, important anti-war documentaries in, in history. And that idea of the only way to capture the truth of an event is by artifice is, is something that I've, I've just found to be a, a fascinating and, and very slippery subject. So throughout the novel, there are these um, instances where, where sort of the fantastic and, and the surreal and the completely staged um, become the only way that certain characters are even able to, um, to interpret and, and understand reality, the reality around them. The Times title, um, uh, the headline was you, of your book, the review, was using fiction to summon the glittering golden age of Hollywood. Uh, we did a show a few months ago with George Stevens. My play is a, the son of a very famous uh, Hollywood writer and a man with a, a, lo a long history of his own in, in the movies. My Place in the Sun, Life in the Golden Age of Hollywood and Washington. Is the book, um, Anthony, in a sense, uh, an attempt at a, a, a nostalgic snapshot of, of Hollywood in its golden age, or is it more complicated than that? I, I, I would, uh, I would say it's, it's more complicated. I, I think that um, in this book, as, as in my previous novels, one of the, the themes that I find myself returning to again and again is how history becomes falsified by political actors in the present. I think that that one of the um, one of the real troubles with historical fiction as a form is that it's often plagued with nostalgia, and my way of trying to write against that a bit is by looking at how history becomes fictionalized in the first place. So many of these characters are, in one way or another, trying to um, trying to gain some sense of clarity um, on the reality around them um, among all of the fictions that is uh, that are being um, that are being spun um, I think that I think that the idea of the idea of looking back at at the past as as a golden age is um, is very regressive in a lot of ways. And I think that in this book, I really tried to show how this period is much more complex, is, is much more, um, much, much darker in a lot of ways in, in terms of, of how we like to see America's role in this period than this sort of grand mythology that is perhaps more comfortable to tell ourselves. One of the characters who comes up in the book is Lini Riefenstahl, of course, the female filmmaker who represented Hitler uh, and Hitler's Germany, Nazi Germany. Um, we've done a number of shows on strong men. We did one with uh, Ruth Ben-Ghiat, who has an important new book out. Well, it's not so new anymore. Strong Men, Mussolini to the Present. Uh, you note, uh, you, you note uh, Anthony, that the book is political. 
the main figures in the book and Hollywood, of course, is so strongly gendered. The main figures in the book are men in many ways. Um, is there a strong sort of gendered political component to the book and, and a, perhaps a critique of the the nature of, 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 of Hollywood uh, uh, and perhaps comparing it in, in, a, in an odd way with fascism? Um, when we did the interview with Ben Ghiac, who has this wonderful quote uh, on Mussolini, she said, one thing was certain, once Mussolini entered your life in your vagina, you were never free of him again. Could one say the same thing about certain characters in, in, in Hollywood in its golden age? You know, I think I think one of the um, the interesting things that that this question brings up is just the idea of of, of the relationship between narratives that narratives that exist within the cultural sphere and those that exist within the political sphere. One of the the things that I was thinking about a lot with this novel is the ways in which uh, in which conspiracy theories are, you know, the central plot engine of so many movies that we love. Um, the idea of of the deep state, for instance, is something that you know just about every geopolitical thriller for the last several decades. Yeah, and the conversation. I mean, I, I mentioned the conversation. You're staying at a, a hotel on Union Square. The conversation is the ultimate San Francisco film about conspiracy. Exactly. Yeah. This idea that there are, you know, shadowy figures in the government who are secretly pulling the strings um, is something that, you know, we have long uh, looked at as as this entertaining sort of uh, spectacle when we go to the movies. And yet the last couple of years uh, uh, under under Trump has has shown how the kinds of narratives we um, enjoy and, and that um, speak in some deep way to are, um, you know, a, a, a dark part of our, our psyche, I guess, um, uh, can easily sort of um, make the, the spillover jump into the political realm where it becomes very, very dangerous. You know, one of the, the things that I, I was thinking about um, a lot over the last uh, couple of years is how movies, um, movies like Jason Bourne or, you know, the, the Avengers movies or any number of, of spy thrillers, how it's always about, um, it's always about one, one guy and it's almost always a guy um, who can see, uh, you know, see the, the conspiracy for what it is and must single-handedly save, um, save the country. Um, and it's very easy, I think, to see how perhaps voters who are raised in an environment where that is the main, um, you know, one of the main cultural narratives that we tell ourselves, how they could easily fall prey to the Trumpian, I alone can fix it rhetoric. Yeah, you wrote this book, of course. Uh, I'm assuming you wrote much of the book during the Trump years. We've done many shows on Trump, one with Jonathan Carl, ABC uh, White House reporter, front row at the Trump show. Do you think then that the way to understand Trump is in terms of the visual tropes, the Hollywood narratives that you mentioned, is that the, the best way to make sense of him? I'm not sure if it's if it's the best way to make sense of him, but I think it's certainly an important one. I mean, he was um, he's he's sort of the the classic showman um, in terms of of his uh, ability to create um, to create spectacle and to um, turn 
turn politics into a form of entertainment. And I think that if if what we are looking for from the political process, if voters are looking to the political process as uh, as a form of entertainment, um, then we're in a deeply troubling place. And one of the things that um, that I found pretty pretty fascinating as I was working on this this novel is just how um, so many of the you know so many of of the producers um, and studio executives during the uh, golden age of Hollywood um, were very happy to to sort of bend reality to to fit um, the needs of their um, of their studios of their own agendas and um, in certain ways I think that that Trump's um, that that Trump is is a figure that has appeared in American history again and again and again. That the the sort of the the showman, the con man, the um, yeah. We we did a show with David Thompson, the very distinguished movie historian, on the cinematic precursors of Donald Trump. He found a number of them. But you're a novelist, um, Anthony. Sometimes it must be rather hard to compete with reality. I did a show with Ken Orletta a couple of weeks ago on Harvey Weinstein. Uh, he has a book called Hollywood Ending, Harvey Weinstein and the Culture of Silence. You couldn't do a better Hollywood narrative than the true story of Harvey Weinstein, can you? I think that that as as a novelist, um, you're maybe coming to the uh, coming to the subject simply from a different angle. Um, so, for instance, uh, you know, one of the one of the things that um, I picked up on while I was working on this book and, and it's sort of one of the set pieces is um, this pro this military project in the war called German Village. And this was um, a recreation of a Berlin neighborhood that the army built in Utah, in the Utah desert um, with collaborations from Standard Oil chemists and Hollywood set designers. And this was a series of tenement buildings that were meticulously accurate. All of the furnishings were provided by German POWs or they were purchased secondhand from German Americans in New York City. The uh, floorboards were shipped from uh, Murmansk from the Soviet Union because uh, the tenements in the Soviet Union used a similar style of of timber as did uh, the tenements in Berlin. At night, firemen would go around dousing the, the various tenements in, in this German village, not because they were putting out any fires, but because they wanted to ensure that the wood framing had a similar level of humidity to a, a Berlin uh, neighborhood. Yeah, I take your point, Anthony. It's all very interesting, but I wonder whether Anything's really new here. Zuckerberg, Mark Zuckerberg at Meta is trying to do the same thing with the metaverse. And many tech critics are suggesting that that's going to revolutionize everything, uh, virtual reality. Uh, how different is what you're describing during the war, this creation of illusion reality and the virtual reality that the, the barons of Silicon Valley, the Mark Zuckerbergs are now creating? for the masses i'm not sure i'm not sure it it uh i'm not sure that it is um different in in uh it, it might be different in type but not in kind i i think that um that the draw of um the draw of a fantasy i think is is 
engineered into into the human into the human mind in in deep and profound ways. I think that we are always trying to find ways of of escaping our um, our, our present circumstances. Uh, escaping our day-to-day realities and whether it's diving into a movie or into a, a VR headset, I think that, um, that these are, are aspects of, of, of human affairs that are enduring and, and will continue, you know, long after Zuckerberg and, and, and the metaverse, um, uh, seeds to something new. And to you refer back to the Thomas Manns and the other intellectuals, uh, European intellectuals who came to Hollywood uh, looking for a, a brave new world. They didn't, of course, find one, or maybe they did find a brave new world. Is there a positive agenda in your book? I mean, you're critical of vir- the virtual reality of Hollywood. You're critical of, obviously, of European fascism, of the cult of leadership. Is there, um, are there some positive messages from, from Mercury Pictures uh, presents your 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 novel, or you think that's inappropriate for a novel and for a novelist to be actually presenting anything positive? <laughs> I mean, I, I think that that what is is positive is in in, in the novel, or, or, or what um, the, the most sort of sunny aspects of it are are the rela- relationships between the characters. That it's a book that is is set as you as you said in, in a pretty dark time where. Um, where perhaps positivity feels out of place, but even in very dark moments in, in human um, in human history, uh, there's still space for for love, for comedy, for um, sacrifice, for family. Um, and I think that ultimately these characters find um, a sense of, of redemption um, or a sense of at least um, purpose in, in each other rather than in the larger structures they find themselves trapped within. It's interesting you talk about that. I, uh, the weekend, I, I watched a movie by the Italian master Marco Belloccio, Marks Can Wait. It's an autobiography of his brother. It's a brilliant piece of work. Um, do you think that for filmmakers, and, 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 it, and it's about the emotional complexity of the relationship with his twin brother who committed suicide 50 years ago. Um, The challenge of writing about humanity is very different from making movies about it, isn't it? Absolutely. I think that, you know, that that the beauty of of fiction as opposed to film is that it, it gives you a sense of interiority. You can literally live within the mind of another individual. And I think it creates a, a kind of intimacy on the page that is perhaps uh, more difficult to achieve on celluloid. One of the things that has always appealed to me about fiction is that it's kind of as close as we can come to living inside the the heads of people we will perhaps never otherwise meet. Um, I think that, that the sense of of you mentioned earlier the idea of sort of what what is positive what is um you know what is uh good and decent in 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 this indecent period and i think that um that being able to live inside the the hearts of of these characters um is a fundamentally decent and good enterprise and it's why i tend to as much as i love films i i feel like i get more out of more out of novels Anthony, there's the purpose of a novelist to find the decent and the good. Isn't that rather 
boring? <laughs> I I mean I think um, I think that that as with with any art form you can't uh, you can't perhaps distill uh, its purpose down to uh, down to one thing. I think that um, that there are a whole range of reasons that we write novels, that we read novels, and um, I think it's a, a bit reductive to uh, simply say that it's it's uh, to find the decent and the good um, as much as it is to to criticize and and point out the the evil and the bad. Anthony, the Times um, the Times Review compared your work with Elsa Morantes. Um, uh, history and novel, and also Marquez's 100 Years of Solitude. You're not the first or the last book to be compared with that. Were there particular novels or novelists, fiction writers that influenced this book, Mercury Pictures Presents? Yeah, one one in particular would be um, another another member of, of the boom, the Latin American boom, uh, Mario Vargas Llosa. He um, is somebody who throughout his work, I, f- I feel like he is, is, is not only a, a meticulous historian um, and a meticulous researcher, but he has a way of, of connecting those larger histories to uh, the lives of characters that you come to care deeply about. And, and also just in terms of, of his structure, the way that he braids together multiple narratives um, and sort of creates this polyphonic echo chamber that you as a reader are, um, you know, gradually uh, subsumed by is, is something that certainly um, paid dividends when I was working on this novel. And that form of magic realism of is, of course, deeply cinematic, isn't it? Yeah, I think that um, that the the ways in which um, in which film allows the fanta- allows the fantastical to impinge upon reality a little bit is certainly reflected in um, in a lot of uh, Latin American magical realism. Well, I, I bet that some of the studio heads are reading your your new book, Mercury Pictures Presents. It sounds already like a movie. I'm sure it will get made into either a movie or a television show. Congratulations, Anthony, again on that. What else would you suggest people read in these deeply cinematic times? I So the, the best book I've read recently is, is called Trust by Hernan Diaz. It is um, It was recently long-listed for the Booker. It's um, this quartet of novellas um, about the, the rise of a of a, a sort of a, a Wall Street robber baron in the, the 1920s. And it's this beautiful novel that, um, that sort of forces you as the reader to reinterpret your, um, your sense of every character's motives in each subsequent novella. So you think you have a handle on a particular character's um, uh, trajectory and, and their, um, their the role they play in the book and every subsequent section forces you to revise that there's something um really wonderful about the the kind of empathy experiment that that creates any good movies anthony since you've just written a book about hollywood what have you been watching recently i've i've been going back and watching a lot of ernst lubitsch uh he is Uh, very appropriate for the book yeah he's i I think he's he's one of the the great directors and, and sadly i think he's perhaps best known today through um 
through his influences, um, through, you know, Billy Wilder, who, who kept a, uh, a plaque over his desk that said, what would Lubitsch do? I, I think that his, Lubitsch's films um, feel like they could have been made yesterday. They're still so fresh.